0: Well, please open your Bible to Mark chapter 4. Mark 4. Last week, we looked at Mark 4 1 to 20, which contained one of the most famous parables in all of the Bible, the parable of the soils. And not only does that passage contain the parable itself, but also a divine explanation of it by Jesus, which is neat to see and to read. We don't get that on every parable, but on that one, we do. And we won't rehash everything from that sermon. That recording is available, as all of them are, on the church website if you want to uh, hear that, if you missed it. But I did make the remark last week that we'd probably come back and revisit verses 10 to 12 in a separate sermon. So today is that separate sermon, okay? These verses are particularly profound. I hope you're ready to dive into the deep end here for a few minutes. You have your thinking caps on. Hopefully you're focused. Hopefully you had a good breakfast, some caffeine, some coffee, and you're thinking sharply this morning. Let's read together. Follow along with me in your Bible if you can. This is Mark 4, verses 10 to 12. It says this, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside... Everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. That's the Word of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever really thought about the parables of Jesus like this before, but... Just think to yourself for a moment, what do you think the purpose of Jesus' parables were? Were um, Were they just intended to be these helpful illustrations of these deep truths, you know, for the purpose of making those truths more simple and more digestible for people? We do see Jesus using very ordinary things in his parables that people would be very familiar with, farming, cooking, shepherding, uh, household items, family relationships, societal relationships, and so on and so forth. And he used very ordinary language to tell these things. And so in that sense, they were simple. But I want you to notice what Jesus says in verse 11, because if you sort of speed past this, you can easily miss a very profound truth. He says to his followers, to you has been given the secret or the mystery. The Greek word is mysterion to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So let's just unpack that for a moment because what this is going to do is it's going to open up, I think, a larger theological issue that we ought to try to understand, okay? First of all, Before we even get into the deep theological issue that's being communicated here, what is this secret? What is this mystery that Jesus is speaking about? Let's talk about that word for just a a minute. That word mysterion is used in this way in the Bible. It is a divine secret that God had previously kept hidden but had now revealed. That's what it means. So it's not some sort of uh, mystical knowledge, some magical knowledge that God zaps us with or something. It's just a revelation of something that was previously hidden by God in times past that He's now revealed. Let's look at a couple of scriptural examples very quickly. This word is used in uh, Colossians 1 verses 25 to 27. I'll try to put that up on the screen for you if everything's working properly here. Okay. Here, Paul says that God made him a minister to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery or the mysterion, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, there the word is again, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul says there was a mystery hidden for ages, but now it's been revealed to his saints, and the mystery is that Christ is now in you, the hope of glory, even as a Gentile. We could camp out and talk about that for a while, couldn't we? But the point is just to see the word use of mysterion. It was hidden for ages, but now it's revealed to the saints. That word is also used in full, in, excuse me, in Ephesians 1 and verse 9, when Paul's talking about God just lavishing grace upon us in all wisdom and insight, and he says making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So the mystery of his will in this case was that God, according to his sovereign purpose, Christ was going to unite all things in heaven and in earth by his blood. And that is clear if you read the previous verses. So then we come back to that's just two examples to try to help us. But we come back to Mark 4 and we read that Jesus tells his disciples, To them had been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. So what's he talking about here? What's this mystery? Well, it was the message that Jesus had been proclaiming ever since his ministry started. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's Jesus' words in Mark 1.15. So this mystery was the good news that, hey, the Messiah is finally here. He was ushering in the kingdom of God and if you come to him in repentance and faith he'll forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life that was Jesus's constant message wherever he went and it's clear throughout the gospels and the reason he speaks of it as a mystery here is because no one knew who the messiah was going to be the old testament didn't name him right It foretold a lot of things about him, right? Um, But it didn't name him as, hey, look for this guy named Jesus of Nazareth. He's going to be the Messiah. It didn't give the precise timing of his coming either. And it didn't give all the precise details of what all he would do. But when Jesus comes and he teaches them, he essentially says, here I am. I'm the one you've been waiting for, the kingdom of God is here. And he does all these works to confirm that these things are true. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. Um, He forgives sins, something that only God can do. Uh, He demonstrates in all these various ways that he is who he claimed to be. That's the mystery that's been revealed to these disciples. It It's essentially the gospel of Christ. But here's the part that's difficult for some of us to accept. That mystery, the revelation of the gospel of Christ, the truth about who Jesus was and is, is not revealed to everyone, it's hidden. From some people. Now it's preached to everyone. It's proclaimed to everyone. It's not hidden in that sense. But it's hidden in the sense that to some it's foolishness. They hear it, but they don't really hear it. They don't really perceive the truth of it. They don't really understand the truth of it. Have you ever thought about why that is? Why did, if you're a believer this morning, why did you understand it? Why did you perceive the truth of the gospel and others around you in the same situation didn't get it? why did you come to Christ and yet your brother didn't or your sister didn't or your mom or your father or your cousin or your friend or your co-worker? They didn't. Was that due to some ability within you to see and understand spiritual truth better than they could? Were you more intellectual than they were? Were you more spiritual than they were? What's the difference between you and them? Have you ever thought about that? I know it's getting a little deep. <laughs> is it is not the difference simply this? To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. It's so simple really. It's not hard to understand it's just hard to swallow for some people. It's, I'll say it again because Charles said to. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to swallow for some of us. In other words, it's not that um, it's not that God revealed himself. to you in such a way that he, you know, he, he took the blinders off and he gave you this new heart and a new will to embrace the gospel. Is it that, I'm asking? Is it, is there, what is the difference between you and them? For some reason, your blinders are off, but you didn't do that. For some reason, you see the truth of the gospel, whereas this person didn't. The only difference between you and them is this little five-letter word that we just sing about. Grace. Grace. Jesus clearly says here, To you has been given. Or the word means granted. Granted. To you has been granted the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So to you, it's been granted. By whom? By God. Granted what? To know the mystery of the kingdom of God. To others, it hasn't been granted. So what does that mean then uh, for our question earlier about the purpose of parables? Apparently, there is a dual purpose for parables. They serve to both reveal and to conceal truth as God saw fit. Reveals to some, conceals to others. To the ones God God grants it, the parables reveals spiritual truths. To others who are still in their sins, blind to spiritual things, the parables are understood only on a surface level. They really don't see the underlying truth. It's concealed. So let's think about that for a minute, about God concealing truth for a moment. Does that bother you? To think that God might conceal truth truth from someone? Let's think about that. Let's think about that. Does God have to actively blind someone for them to be blind to spiritual things? In other words, are people totally neutral and just open to see all truth and God comes along and says, nope, not you, blinders on. Is that the way it works? God doesn't have to blind us himself for us to be blind. We're all spiritually blind already, right? We can't see the truth. We don't understand it. In fact, we're so unresponsive to God's truth that he characterizes us in his word as being dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1. And the only way that we can Come to see the truth of God is if God by His grace grants us eyes to see it. And thankfully that's exactly what Jesus does. He comes along and as He wills He grants spiritual life and sight and understanding. So if you are able to see and understand spiritual truth today, guess who you have to thank? Is it yourself for being so open to this? I was just so ready for it. No. We can thank God alone for revealing himself to us and opening our eyes to see the truth. He did that. He did it. Are you following me so far? Okay. Now the sister truth to this fact is that the sister truth to the fact that God grants some people eyes to see is that God hasn't granted spiritual eyes to all people. We're entirely dependent on Him to grant spiritual sight. And He does it of His own free will and sovereign purposes. God is free to give sight to whomever He wills. And He can withhold it from whomever He wills as well. Let's look at a passage that highlights this fact. There's many of them actually. But this one is maybe particularly helpful. Hold your place in Mark 4 and flip over to the first gospel in your Bible, the gospel of Matthew, and turn to chapter 11. Matthew 11. In Matthew 11 and beginning in verse 20, we see and hear Jesus pronouncing these judgments on these cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. These cities that he was ministering in, they had tremendous gospel light shed on them. They got to see the Messiah himself. They got to witness all his mighty works. And they got to hear his teaching in person. But did they repent for the most part? No, they did not. And Jesus says things like this to them. I'm just summarizing. If the people of Sodom had seen and heard what you have heard, They would have repented long ago, and they'd still be here, he says. But because you have rejected me, he says, your judgment, can you believe this? Your judgment is going to be worse than Sodom. And Sodom was a wicked city. Do you remember what God did to Sodom? Burn it up from fire from heaven. But he tells these cities, you're worse. Why? Because you had more light than they did. And you rejected it. That's why. And you thought yourself to be wise and understanding. But you are just hard-hearted and stiff-necked. And it's in the context of those pronouncements of judgment that Jesus prays a prayer Allowed for everyone to hear him to the Father in verse 25. Here's what I wanted us to see. Look at it with me. Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now why did I have us read that? Because it comes as a shock, I think, to our fallen sense of fairness to hear Jesus himself say that God has hidden truth from some people and revealed it to others. And then on top of that, Jesus praises God for that act of concealing and revealing. He says, for such was your gracious will. God reveals truth only to those whom he has chosen to reveal it to. Isn't it so plain? I told you it wasn't hard to understand. It's just hard to swallow. Look at verse 27 again. He says, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about in Mark 4, 10 to 12. Go back there to our main passage with me. Back in Mark 4. He's telling his disciples that he has chosen to reveal himself to them. That he has granted that knowledge to them. But he hasn't granted that knowledge to everyone. Some people just get parables. And they have no idea what they mean because they're blind still to spiritual things. Here's something else that kind of adds to our adds to the picture. In our passage in verse 12, you might notice it indented there or set off in some way in your bible because it's a quotation, a shortened quotation in this case from an Old Testament passage. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 6, and I think we ought to turn there and read that passage. Will you turn there with me? Jesus quotes this for a reason, and I think we need to see the context. So I'm looking at Isaiah 6 verses 8 to 13, okay? Isaiah 6. 8 to 13. By the way, Isaiah 6 is where Isaiah sees this vision of the throne room of heaven itself. And God is on the throne, where he always is, by the way. But follow along with me, beginning at verse 8. It says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Does that sound familiar from Mark 4? Jesus quotes that part. But let's continue in Isaiah to see what he's what all he's talking about. Picking up with verse 10. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Is it stump? So in that passage, God asks, Is there a messenger that will go and deliver my message to the people of Israel? And Isaiah says, Yes, I'll go. And God tells him to go preach to these dull of heart, spiritually deaf, spiritually blind people. And God tells Isaiah, I can already tell you how they're going to respond to you, Isaiah. They're not going to understand. They're not going to repent. And Isaiah says, Okay, Lord, how long do I preach that message to them then? And God says, until I destroy them. Until the cities lie waste without inhabitants. He does say, yes, there's going to be a remnant, but it's not many. The point is, Isaiah, you just preach until I bring judgment on them. And just so you know, these people, like us, they had it coming. They're not innocent. The first five chapters of Isaiah describe their idolatry and their wickedness. They had despised the Lord. It says they had forsaken Him. It says from the sole of their foot to the top of their head, there's no health in them. It says they bowed down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers had made, it says. And I find it so interesting putting these passages together that in Psalm 115 It tells us what happens to you when you worship idols in the works of your hands. I'll put it on the screen. It says this, Psalm 115, verses 4 to 8. It says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes, but don't see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. It's talking about their false gods. And they do not make a sound in their throat. They can't respond to you. And then verse 8 says, Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So these people to whom Isaiah is supposed to preach, they're blind and deaf. And dull of heart because they become just like their idols that they made and worshipped. God just gave them up to their own devices to become like what they're worshipping. So when Jesus quotes Isaiah 6 in our passage for this morning in Mark 4. And he's relating all this to his use of parables. We see that it's actually an act of judgment. On these people to whom Jesus calls outsiders who have rejected him. They're not innocent. They weren't genuinely seeking truth. They had rejected Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm just going to give them parables. And they'll remain in darkness. They won't understand. And what light they have been given, I'm just going to take it away. If you read the parallel passage in Matthew 13... He goes into that taking away that light. We won't have time to go into that today. So we might could say it this way: Jesus is confirming the states of people's hearts with his parables. The insiders whom he had granted spiritual sight, they were given understanding. But the outsiders who continue to reject God will be confirmed in that unbelief and they'll just continue in blindness. And there's always these two truths taught in Scripture. This is kind of where it boils down to. God's sovereignty in choosing whom He will save And man's responsibility to repent and believe in Christ. Two truths seemingly hard sometimes to cleanly reconcile in these pea brains. But it's not a problem for God's brain. If we can speak of him as having a brain. He's a spirit. But it's not a problem for him. God chooses whom he will give this illuminating grace to. And yet, at the same time, all unbelievers are held accountable for their unbelief. Now, if that seems unfair to any of us, I have to ask, to whom does God owe grace? And also, do we really want fairness if we're going to ask God for what we think is fair what is actually fair fair would be we all go to hell that's fair right that's what we all deserve so what I'm getting at is just because he grants some the ability to see and believe does that mean that he owes that to all people no no he doesn't owe it to any of us. And in fact, in Romans 9 verse 20, Paul actually anticipates people hearing what he's saying and them responding with, that doesn't seem fair, Paul. You sure God is like that? And the inspired apostle says, who are you, O oh man, to answer to God? to answer back to God. And he says, will what is molded say to its molder, hey, why you made me like this? We're clay, right? We're clay and God is the potter and God forms the clay as he wishes and he has the right to do with his clay whatever he wants, right? Right? And when we start accusing God, if we're ever tempted to accuse God of unfairness, we know that we have stepped out of our league. Job found that out, didn't he? He he thought he had some good questions for God. I want to ask God some things, he said. And God essentially says, okay, you can ask your questions, Job, after I ask you some questions. Where were you when I made this universe, Job? I didn't see you around when I made the universe. I didn't realize you and I were equals, Job. And Job just ends up at the end saying, I put my hand over my mouth, God. I spoke too soon. I'm out of place. I see that now. The judge of all the earth will do right. There is no unfairness with God. There is no unfairness with him. Let me me point out something with an illustration to us. I told you we were getting deep this morning. Hope I haven't blown your minds. Let me point something out with an illustration since we're in deep waters here, deep theological waters talking about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, okay? Some people think that God is unfair if he holds unbelieving people accountable for their actions. What I mean is this, how can we be held accountable to have faith in Christ if we're incapable of understanding spiritual truth on our own? Do you get the question? How can we be held accountable to put faith in Christ? That's what God tells us to do: repent and believe. How can we be held accountable to do that if we're incapable of doing that on our own? Well, imagine this scenario with me for a moment, and maybe it'll help in a simplistic way. You tell your 17-year-old son: You might have a 17-year-old son in here. No, close, maybe Melissa the close. I don't know. How old are you guys back there? Close, okay, right in the middle of those two. I didn't have you in mind with this illustration, by the way. Don't worry. So you tell your 17-year-old son to cut the grass while you go into town and run some errands, okay? And it's his responsibility to obey you in that, right? Right? And you warn him also in love, son, be careful out back around that ditch. They haven't come and filled that in yet. That thing is 12 feet deep. Watch out when you go around the ditch. Don't fall in there, okay? And he says, okay, dad, I got it, I got it. And when you return from your errands, you find that the grass is not mowed. And you don't even see your son anywhere and you call out for him and all you hear is a muffled i'm down here dad (laughs) sure enough he's fallen into the ditch and he can't get himself out now i know this is a simplistic illustration for a very deep truth but let me just point out some parallels with our situation Was the son responsible to cut the grass like you told him to do? Yes. Did his falling into the ditch remove his obligation to obey you in cutting the grass? No, it didn't. He was still responsible. It's his own fault that he ignored your warnings about the ditch and fell in and rendered himself unable to get out of the ditch to obey you, right? Do you see the parallel in our fallenness? Is it kind of, sort of there? We are unable to obey God or respond positively to the gospel all on our own without the Spirit's work in our heart. That's very clear from Scripture. I mean, just take as a clear example 1 Corinthians 2.14. It says, The natural person... That's the non-spirit-filled person, the unbeliever. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14. So it's very clear that apart from the Spirit's work in our hearts, We're unable to respond positively to the gospel. But does that relieve us from having the responsibility to believe the gospel? No. We're still responsible for our own unbelief. Why? Because we put ourselves as a human race in this position due to our sin. Our first parent, Adam, he was our representative. And because of his rebellion, we are all rebels now, right? And because of his sin, we all now have a sin nature that rules us apart from Christ. And without God's grace to show us the truth, we'll just die in unbelief. But just because God chooses not to reveal himself to me doesn't mean that I am relieved from all of the responsibility to him. My inability isn't God's fault. It's our fault. It's the consequences of our sin. And if we go and we take a sidestep and we say, well, I don't like this arrangement of having a representative for me then, who he messed up. And now we got to suffer the consequences. But, my friend, remember that the only way we can be saved is by representation. That's God's arrangement. That's how He's chosen to do it. Just like Adam represented all of us and all of us fell in Him, now Christ can represent us as the God-man when we put our faith in Him. So as soon as we say, I don't like this representative stuff, then we've cut ourselves off from Christ as our representative. Now who's going to save us? When we learn from God's word that he has to grant us spiritual life and spiritual sight and spiritual understanding before we can be saved, we may begin to think, well, that 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 means that if He doesn't grant somebody spiritual life, then He can't punish them for that unbelief. That's not their fault. God just didn't give them what they needed to believe. But again, that just fails to see that we are actually responsible, as I said, for our own inability. In essence, here's another illustration. In essence... We told God we'd use both arms to serve him. And then we amputated both our arms and said, Well, you can't hold it against us to keep our promise now, Lord. God didn't cause you to cut your arms off, (laughs) we did that to ourselves. And we justly suffer the consequences when we don't believe. That's a hard truth. God's sovereignty alongside man's responsibility. And it's especially hard, I know. I've struggled with it. It's especially hard if you're new to trying to understand it. But it's taught all throughout the Bible. I'll just give you a couple of examples before we close in just a minute. One big example where we see both of these things is Acts chapter 2. During Peter's sermon, says in Acts 2.23, he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What does that tell us? Well, for one thing, Jesus was delivered up according to the sovereign plan of God. That's one thing it tells us. So we say, oh, okay, so that means the men who killed him can't be held responsible for their actions, right? Because God sovereignly decreed that that would happen. Peter says, no, you crucified him. You killed him with lawless hands. It was lawless. It was wicked. It was sinful. Those men weren't robots as they crucified the Lord and called for his crucifixion as we heard from our reading earlier they did it for their own reasons their own sinful motives so they are responsible even though god was overruling and accomplishing all of his purposes that were even higher than what they could even fathom or how about mark 14:21 jesus is speaking of judas's betrayal and he says this For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. There it is again. The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. Meaning this betrayal was foreordained by God. Foretold by the Scriptures. However... Judas was not rendered helpless or innocent in his actions. says, woe to that man. Better for him if he wasn't even born. There's another example of, of God's sovereignty alongside man responsibility in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. I won't bring up any passages here because it's more of a longer scheme that you read the whole short book of Habakkuk that you see, the Lord raises up this people called the Babylonians, or you could call them the Chaldeans. He raises up the Chaldeans to come against his own people, Israel, and judge them. And he specifically uses that language. Habakkuk 1.6, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, God says. And he uses this wicked nation of Babylon to punish Israel. But then later, he pronounces woes on Babylon for their actions. Now, how can he raise them up for judgment against Israel and then turn around and hold them accountable for those actions? Well, because their motives were not to do God's will at all. Their motives were just to plunder and kill and do wicked things to God's people. So even if God was sovereign over the whole thing and he uses it for his own purposes, the Chaldeans weren't doing it for God's glory. They were doing it for their own glory. They were doing it because they wanted to do it. And so God righteously turns around and judges them for their actions against his people. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Side by side, over and over and over again. So when we read in Mark 4 and Matthew 13 and Luke 8, which are the parallels to our passage today, Mark 4, 10 to 12, you should go read those, by the way. Matthew 10, excuse me, Matthew 13 and Luke 8. When we read about... Jesus granting his disciples to know the mystery of the kingdom while others aren't granted that knowledge and we start putting all the pieces together, here's what it should do to us. Here's the path that it should lead us down in our minds, okay? First of all, we should recognize That we need God's grace to understand and embrace His truth. Can anyone say amen to that much? We need God's grace to understand and embrace His truth. You know, God's grace isn't summed up totally in just the fact that He sent His Son, that's part of it. But there's more to God's grace. Not only did he send his son to save us, he also graciously does all of the heart work necessary to bring us to faith. And if we find ourselves having that new heart, oh, then your heart can soar in praise because it reveals that a miracle was done in your heart. If somebody says, you believe in miracles today? I say, 100%. Every time a sinner repents and put their faith in Christ, I know a miracle was done right there. God has done in that person what only He could do. He acted first, not us. We had faith, but He gifted us the faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We believed, but we only believed because He took the blinders off first. Every bit of our salvation is from Him. Do you see how deep the grace of God is? I hope I haven't blown your minds this morning, but it's in the Word of God. It's there for a purpose. We ought to think about it. The deep grace of God. It's not just in providing a sacrifice for sin. It's in applying it to us. It's helping us to see it. It's giving us the ability to understand it. I mean, it's all God from start to finish. And that's why I've told you this before, but that's why the sovereignty of God in salvation has changed my life more than any other thing I've ever learned in my Christian journey thus far. You read the scriptures and you say, how did I miss it? It's everywhere. It's on every page. It's glorious. Thank you, Lord. These doctrines of grace are just like sweetness to my soul. And they don't come from John Calvin or Martin Luther or Augustine. They go back to the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. And for the believer who comes to see the sovereign work of God and salvation, the words of Mark 11 ring so true. They're not vague. They're not muddy. They're not ethereal out there, but you just, I don't really know what that means. They're not hard to understand. You know, they describe exactly what God has done for you when it says, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us understand the depth of your salvation better? May we not settle for a surface understanding of it and then render back to you surface level worship. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed your truth to little children. We thank you that you have chosen the foolish to shame the wise. You've chosen the weak to shame the strong. You've chosen the low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in your presence. And it's because of you that we are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We boast in you alone this morning, Lord. If I have caused any confusion in any hearts, Lord, make it clear If there are any here, Lord, that would buck against the sovereignty of God and salvation, Lord, I pray that you would make it clear to them as well. Send them on a deep dive to the scriptures. Show them the beauty of this truth. And all the glory goes to you. It's through Jesus we pray these things. Amen.